Good morning, Greenville Oaks. I'm Keith Maloney. I'm one of the ministers here. Our lead minister, Colin Packer, is away this weekend and invited me to to share a message with you. We're beginning a new series today uh, called The Way. It's about discipleship, what it means to really follow Jesus. And today we're going to start that out by simply asking the question, what's a disciple anyway? What's a, how do we define that? What, what is it? Uh, and as I was preparing this lesson, I uh, remembered a time when I had a lot of followers. Uh, it was a Friday night, and we had gone to the uh, state fair to go to the musical there. Cindy, my wife, loves musicals. We were there. And this is years ago, back when they were still having football games in the Cotton Bowl on Friday night. And the musical let out about the same time as the football game did. And between all of those people leaving and the fairgoers leaving, I mean, there was this horrendous traffic jam. We were in a big parking lot called Grand Avenue, waiting, trying to get over to I-30 to start our way back home. And we inched slowly along, and finally we came to a little residential street, and I thought, man, anything's better than this. So I turned down that street thinking maybe I can find a way out. And we traveled down this little narrow residential street for half a mile or more. It's dark. We finally got to the end of the street. There was no way out. It just, it just ended at a little grassy area under an overpass of I-30 just east of downtown. Now, thankfully, there was no curb there, so I could drive out into the grass, turn around, and go back down that road to go back where we came from. Now, what I hadn't noticed until we turned around and started going back is that there were some cars that had followed me, and they were having to turn around and go back, too. We went all the way back to Grand Avenue, and the entire way we were coming back, there was a steady line of cars, unbroken, just following, going down to this grassy field to turn around and come back, wondering what idiot came down this road that we're all following anyway. Maybe, you know, you really need to know something about who you're following before you start following them. But when we're on the way, we're followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, when Jesus was at the very beginning of his ministry, he walked along the shore of the Sea of Galilee and came upon a couple of fishermen, a guy named Peter and another named Andrew. And he said two words, according to the biblical record, he said, follow me. And they did. They, this is, they left their nets and followed him. And then he walked along a little bit more and he came to uh, a couple of more fishermen, James and John. And he said, again, those same two words, follow me. And they left their boats, the Bible says, and followed him. Later on, he's in a town or a village and he comes upon a guy named Levi or Matthew. He was a tax collector, which was a really, really profitable enterprise in the first century in, uh, in that area. He said to this guy, follow me, and he did. He just walked away from everything he had and followed Jesus. It's amazing what these guys did. We, we talk about Jesus giving us the great commission, and we talk about the, the great commandment that he emphasized. Well, I think we ought to call this the great invitation, because those two little words are the greatest invitation you'll ever receive, follow me from Jesus. And we, as his followers of Jesus, are still in the business of offering that invitation to people today. We not only have the privilege of accepting Jesus' invitation to be his follower, we have the privilege of offering that same invitation on his behalf to someone else. That's really the reason we're here. That's why we exist as a church. Some people think the church exists 
They help people become Christians. And they think a Christian is somebody who, who embraces a certain set of beliefs about God and about Jesus and about the church and about morality and so forth and so on. And if you, if you do that, then you'll go to heaven when you die. And that's what it means to be a Christian. Now, folks, faith is the bedrock foundation of what makes us a child of God. That's our relationship with Jesus Christ. It's all about trusting in Him. It's not anything that we do. But just believing in Jesus doesn't necessarily mean that you're a disciple of Him. Then you're following Him. You know, the, the word Christian is only in the Bible three times. But the word disciple is in there 269 times. And Jesus had a lot to say about being a disciple, about being a follower of His. Now, a lot of people today have the kind of a vague notion. It's kind of fuzzy about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Some people have a very clear idea about what it means to be a disciple, but it's very different from the idea that Jesus had. When you look at the word disciple, find a definition. It says somebody who is a follower of a student, uh, a follower or a student of a teacher, leader, or philosopher. You can be a disciple of a lot of different kinds of folks. The Russian revolutionary Lenin was a disciple of Karl Marx. Uh, Carl Jung, the pioneering psychologist, was a disciple of Sigmund Freud. Renowned composer Stephen Sondheim was a disciple of Oscar Hammerstein. And the great Dr. Martin Luther King was a disciple of Mahatma Gandhi. You should, see, a disciple is somebody that uh, the teacher... The, the one who they're following has this really, really significant impact on, shapes and molds who they are and how they think and how they live. Most of the time when we think of a, a disciple of somebody, we think about that happening in person, but it doesn't have to because Dr. Martin Luther King never actually met Mahatma Gandhi. Gandhi was killed when King was just a teenager. But he adopted, he embraced the approach to social change through nonviolent protest that Gandhi had pioneered. And through that, he accomplished incredible groundbreaking changes in civil rights in this country. And here's what King said about that. He said, Christ gave us the goals and Mahatma Gandhi the tactics. You don't have to be with somebody personally to be their disciple, as long as you're learning from them, as long as you're, you're following what they advocate to do. On the other time, on the other hand, you can spend time up close and personal with somebody for a long period of time and not really be their follower. A renowned scholar was, had addressed a group of people, and afterwards he was standing around talking to folks, and somebody came up to him and said, hey, I know somebody that was one of your students, and he told the name. And the scholars thought a minute, and he said, well, he attended my lectures, but he never really was one of my students. Because just attending lectures doesn't make you a student, a follower, a disciple. And just attending church doesn't either. You can be an admirer of somebody. You can be a fan. You can be a supporter and not really be a follower. Jesus described in John 8, 31, what it means to be a disciple. 
Jesus, I'm reading from the God's Word translation here. It says, so Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, if you live by what I say, you are truly my disciples. Did you get that? He's talking to the Jews who believed in him. He wasn't trying to get them to believe in him. They already did. But he said, this is how, this is what makes you my disciple. If you live by what I say. You see, the real question about if I'm a disciple or not, if I'm a follower of Jesus or not, isn't if I am perfect. It's not if I'm better than other people. It's not if I have all the right answers to the questions about religious things. The real test of being a disciple, the real question is, am I following Jesus? Am I living life shaped and molded by him? Following is different than admiring. You can admire at a distance. You can know a lot about a person. You can speak well of them, but that doesn't mean you're following. The following is also very different than just adhering to rules. Have you ever known somebody that knew the rules really well? And they followed them pretty well. But they were still pretty much a jerk when it came to the way they treated other people. That's not somebody who is a real disciple of Jesus. That's not somebody being shaped and molded into his image. The best way to understand if you're a disciple or not is just, am I doing what Jesus said to do? Am I honestly learning to live as he did? And sometimes people are not sure if they're a disciple or not. They're kind of, they're kind of wondering about it. They're just undecided. But if you're learning something from somebody, you know it. If you want to learn how to be a football coach or an orchestra conductor, or if you want to learn how to be a surgeon, you typically are going to follow somebody. You're going to be a student of theirs and learn how to do that from them. <clears throat> Cindy was uh, in the hospital recently. My wife had a surgery back in May. And the surgeon who did it after she was in the hospital recovering, he would come by her room, as they always do every morning, and see how she was doing and change things or whatever. And every time he came into that room, he had this little entourage with him. There were three or four people at least. Sometimes there were five or six people that walked into the room. And you know what? Every single one of those people that were following him around were doctors. They were already MDs. But they wanted to follow him. They were learning to do surgery the way he did. And if you were to ask any of those people, are you a, a disciple? Are you a student? Are you learning from Dr. J? Every one of them would have said, absolutely. Not one of them would have said, well, you know, I'm, I'm not really sure. Maybe. Let me think about it. No, no. They were devoting a year or more of their life to following this man, to learning to do surgery the way he did. That's what a disciple is, somebody that learns. <clears throat> because this is so important and so daunting to some of us. Some people think if we're not the very best disciple there is, then we may not really be a disciple at all. But folks, just because you're not the best follower of Jesus doesn't mean you're not his follower. Doesn't mean you're not trying to learn from him and, and mold your life after him. You can be a pretty poor disciple and still be a disciple. You can be pretty bad at following, but you're still a disciple. You're still following. You're still trying to follow him. And the reason I know that is because I've read the Bible. And you look in the New Testament and you see how Jesus interacted with some of his followers. And you know they were not great disciples. They were pretty poor at following. 
I mean, just think of some of the things he said to them. He said, oh, you of little faith. He said that a lot. Oh, you of little faith. He said, what were you arguing about? He said to one of them, get behind me, Satan. Wow, that doesn't sound like a star for him for that day as a discipleship, does it? He said, have I been with you so long and you do not know who I am? How long must I put up with you? He said to one of them, you'll deny me three times. And he said to some others, couldn't you stay awake and pray with me for one hour? You see, they, they weren't all that great at being disciples. But it didn't matter. They were still his disciples. He never gave any of them the boot because he knew they were trying. When our, uh, our son-in-law graduated from college, he decided, well, before that, he had decided he wanted to be a doctor of optometry. So he went down to optometry school down at the University of Houston, and he got his doctorate. And we went down to his graduation. And I'm proud to say that although he wasn't first in his class, he graduated in the, in the top part of his class. He's a sharp guy, good doctor. You know what they call the person who graduates first, right? Valedictorian. You know what they called the person that graduated last in his class? Doctor. You see, you don't have to be first in your class to be a disciple. And Jesus, Jesus understood that with these guys. I think they were all in the remedial discipling group, okay? And just because you're not the best disciple, it doesn't mean you're not following Jesus. You may feel like the worst disciple of all, but he's still... Not, he's still going to accept you. Not once did he say that he's, to these guys, I'm done with you. You're finished. Get out of here. I don't want you around anymore. And, and he's not going to say that to you. At the same time, he's also not going to play games about what it means to be a disciple. Some people who may be really good church members, really not much on the way of disciples. You see, <clears throat> because they never deal with the basic question, am I really willing to live my life according to the things Jesus taught? Am I ready to do what he said to do regardless of what it takes? Will I follow him? Now, following, maybe one reason that's the case is following today is not very often thought of in real high regard. Have you noticed that? To be called a follower is not generally taken as a compliment. In fact, uh, teachers will often tell the parents of some of their students when they're trying to, to explain to them how they're doing this, oh, your child is a leader. Your child is a risk taker. Your child is an independent thinker. And we feel good about that. I'm not sure we feel so good if they say your child is a real follower. We, we just, we don't, we don't think much of that. We're not, we're not drawn to that. I heard of one lady, that, a young lady, that was making an application for college. She picked out the college she wanted to go to, and she was filling out the application. And when she got down to the question that said, are you a leader? Her heart sank because she thought, I've got to be truthful. She wrote down no. She finished the application and sent it in, but she, was, she really wasn't expecting to get in. And she was surprised several weeks later when she got a letter from that college, and it said in part this, dear applicant, a study of the application forms reveals that this year our college will have 1,452 new leaders. We're accepting you because we feel it is imperative they have at least one follower. (laughs) 
we, we don't like to be called a follower. When we, somebody says, you need to be a follower, we think of somebody that's kind of doesn't have a lot of backbone, not a lot of gumption, kind of weak-willed, you know, very compliant, just going to do what somebody says for no good reason. But that's not what Jesus is calling you to as his disciple. Jesus didn't say, I have come that you might be a weak-willed conformist and do something that whatever somebody tells you, whether it makes any sense to you or not. No. That doesn't describe the people that followed Jesus in the first century. These guys had left everything. They were bold. They were risk-takers. They were ready to grab a hold of the opportunity. They weren't timid, shy wallflowers. It's probably one of the reasons they weren't great followers at the beginning. They had a struggle with that because of the kind of people they were. You can't be a follower of Jesus in our world today and be a conformist. Because what Jesus tells you about the values you should have and how you should live your life is in direct opposition to all the messages you're going to get from the world and our culture around us. You can't just be a conformist doing what's expected of you and follow Jesus. In John 10 and verse 10, the New Century Version says it this way, a thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I came to give life, life in all its fullness. Now, there's a lot of things out there that will promise you the good life today. All you got to do is turn on your TV and watch it for a little while, and you'll, get, you'll see a pitch for all of them sooner or later. Maybe it's possessions, maybe it's power, maybe it's pride, maybe it's money. You, you make a list a mile long. But they're all thieves because you can sacrifice all kinds of things to get that stuff, and it's still not going to bring you the fullness of life that following Jesus will. When you understand that, you realize there's really no good reason not to follow Jesus. And so Jesus, as he often does in situations like this, he tells a story to help us really see the clear decision that's to be made, the contrast, in two ways. He tells it in Matthew 7 at the the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, that Jesus really just lines out, here's what I'm telling you you need to do in contrast to what they normally heard people, religious people say. And he gets down to the end of it. He says, now, you got a choice. You can follow me or you can follow a different way. In fact, in verse 21 of Matthew 7, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. It's, It's not really about just Lord, Lord. No, it's about doing the will of the Father. And then he tells the story, verse 24, Matthew 7. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew against that house. Yet it didn't fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell with a great crash. 
In this story, actually there are two little stories, very similar stories. Almost everything's the same, except there's one huge difference. And you could, you could read it by saying everybody, I'm, I'm sorry, the person who builds a life instead of house. Everybody builds, everybody builds a house in these stories. Everybody builds a life that Jesus is talking to. <clears throat> you may be building a life that's a great life. You may be building a life that's, that's really kind of sad. You may be building a, a, a beautiful life or an ugly life. You may be building a life with God's help, or you may be trying to do it all on your own. But whatever, however the life is going, we're all building a life, and we have to own responsibility for our own lives. We can't, we can't pass that responsibility off on somebody else. We can't blame it on our parents or our family or our boss or our friends or the world or whatever it is. We're all choosing how we build a life, and it's made up mostly by those choices we make, those little things day in and day out that we don't think that much about. What am I going to read? What am I going to think about? What am I going to spend my time doing? What am, what am I going to say to people? How am I going to respond to different things? All of those little things that make up all day, every day. We're all making those choices. How are we going to do that? What are we going to, what are we going to base that on? What are we going to build that on? Everybody builds a house. Everybody builds a life. There's a second thing that's the same too. In both stories, everybody faces a storm. Jesus is not giving advice and instruction here on how to avoid storms because it just doesn't happen. It can't be done. Everybody's going to have a storm. I, I wish we could go to some place or live in such a way or do something. We, we think we ought to be good enough or powerful enough, strong enough, smart enough, faithful enough, pray hard enough so that no storms come. That's not going to happen. I heard of one person that got tired of all the storms. They lived in this part of the, part of the country. And they, they said, man, if it's not a hailstorm or a windstorm or a thunderstorm, it's a tornado. I'm moving. They moved to California. <laughs> Don't have a lot of hailstorms and tornadoes in California. Now they're just out there with the fires. You can't move away from the storms. You just trade one kind for another. And we can't move away. There's no, nothing that we can do to keep us out of having the storms in life. Uh, my wife, Cindy, learned that in a real powerful way recently. Uh, back in November, she went into the hospital for uh, routine surgery to repair idle hernia. And it, it didn't go routine. Uh, the, kind of, the wheels kind of came off. Uh, a couple of weeks later, they were doing emergency surgery because, uh, I mean, she was in excruciating pain, and if they didn't do something, she wasn't going to be able to live. But that's, that surgery wasn't really successful in remedying the thing. It just bought her some time, so they put her on a feeding tube, and she's been on that for about the last six, seven months. May, at the end of May, they did this third surgery. And uh, better than what they were anticipating when they went in, they were able to save her stomach instead of removing it. Uh, but they still weren't able to get things exactly where they belong. But they got it close enough to normal that she can, 
she can begin to live a normal life. And, and uh, she's had her tube, feeding tube removed this week. Man, we're so thankful for that. So, so grateful to God. God has been so faithful to walk alongside her. Yeah. But um, God's been faithful and good. But she'll never be as healthy as she would have been if she had never even started down that road. But you see, she didn't know. It was supposed to make her healthier. The thing is, you don't know when the storm's going to come or how it's going to come or what it's going to look like. You don't know. You've got no way of knowing. We just know that the storm's going to come. And the thing that's going to make all the difference is what your foundation is built on. Because what the storm's going to do is reveal the strength of your foundation. It's important, it's really important to recognize that Jesus here doesn't say there was a good man and there was an evil man. No, there was a wise man and a foolish man. But not a good man and an evil. We don't usually choose to be evil. Things just sort of happen. (laughs) If you're a parent, you understand this. You've been there. I know you have. If, you're, if you have a child that does something that is, that is harmful or maybe self-destructive or harmful to somebody else or, or just infuriating, and you say, why? Why did you do that foolish thing? And parents always ask that question, don't we? The same silly question. You know the answer already. Because you ask, why did you cut your sister's hair when you were playing barbershop? Why did you throw lit matches into dry grass just to play fireman? Why did you stick your hand in that vase through a hole that was so small you can't get it out again? Why did you put your Superman cape on and jump from the top bunk of the bunk beds with the ceiling fan still running? Why? Not that I personally had any experience with any of those things. (laughs) But we asked that question. Why? What were you thinking? And we know the answer we're going to get before we ask it. I don't know. (laughs) Seemed like a cool thing to do when we did it. And I think our Heavenly Father says, why did you build your life on sand? And we say... I don't know, seemed like the thing to do. The difference in the two stories is that one person was not one person evil and one person good. One person was wise and one was foolish. You see, we don't don't intend to do the, the bad things. Nobody gets married and plans on having a divorce. Nobody, nobody meets somebody at the office and plans on having an affair. Nobody has a child and plans to neglect them or mistreat them or abuse them. Nobody, nobody enters into life thinking, oh, I'm going to be some kind of an evil, selfish, egocentric person who dislikes everybody but me. Nobody starts out that way. Nobody starts building a life 
thinking, I want this to be one that's filled with anger and bitterness and resentment and all kinds of stuff. The difference is the foundation they build on. You see, you either will build your life on the grace and the truth of Jesus Christ, following what He says, living life the way He calls you to, or you'll build your life on something else. And the thing is, everything else is sand. And when the storms come, and they will come, they're not going to hold up. Now, it's really important we understand that building your life on that rock, on following Jesus Christ, doesn't come without a price. There's a price for everything. Maybe this will help you get an idea of understanding it. Let's say you always loved sports. You, you played as long as you could, but you really wished you could have done more. And suddenly you get a call inviting you to come and join the greatest team in the history of sports ever. Whatever you think that team is, don't yell out the name of them, okay? And you go, you're so excited, and you go, and the coach comes up and he puts his arm around your shoulder. He says, man, I'm so glad you're here because he's a great coach, and he's an inspirational leader. And he says, man, what I want you to do is I want you to do these drills. I want you to, to study these films. I want you to do these exercises. I want you to learn these plays in our playbook because I think you are going to be really an incredible contributor to our team. And you say, whoa, 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 not so fast. I'm thrilled to be on the team. I want to wear the, I want to wear the uniform. I want to play in the games. I, I want to get the ring, the championship ring when we win. But, but I don't want to do it the way you're telling me. I, I just want to do it my way, okay? How long do you think you'd last on that team? Okay, maybe you're not a sports guy. Uh, let's say you were... You got a job with the greatest corporation the world has ever known. The best, whatever you think that company might be. And you go, and not only did you get a job there, you report directly to the CEO. You're so excited when you go for the first day of work, and the CEO says, hey, come sit down, have a cup of coffee, let's talk. And he says, look, man, I've got such great plans for you. I want you, I want you to take on this task. I want you to, to learn how to develop these competencies. I want you to assemble a team of the people that are going to be supporting you, and I want you to eventually take on our top client, the one that is more valuable to us than anyone else. And you say, okay, hold on. We need to get something clear right away. I want to work here. I, I, love, I love my job here. I love the salary. I love the prestige that goes with it. I really love my corner office. But I want to do things the way I want to do them. How long do you think you'd last there? And yet I often talk to people who say they want to be followers of Jesus. They want all of the blessings that he provides. They want all of the promises that he gives. But they just really aren't interested in doing what he says to do and living life the way he says to do it. They want to get that stuff without paying the price. Eugene Peterson, the guy that wrote the uh, 
message translation of the Bible, I think put it well. He said, many Christians are only Christaholics and not disciples at all. Disciples are cross-bearers. They seek Christ. Christaholics seek happiness. Disciples dare to discipline themselves and the demands they place on themselves lead them enjoying the happiness of their growth. Christaholics are escapists looking for a shortcut to nirvana. Like drug addicts, they are trying to bomb out of their depressing world. There is no automatic joy. Christ is not a happiness capsule. He is the way to the Father. But the way to the Father is not a carnival ride in which we sit and do nothing while we are whisked through various spiritual sensations. People who are far wiser and far better at being disciples of Jesus than I ever hoped to be will tell you selective obedience will not get you to the abundant life. It just won't do it. There's a line in the big book of AA, I think it's in chapter 5, that says this. It says, half measures availed us nothing. We stood at the turning point. We asked his protection and care with complete abandon. These are people who know they're at the crossroads between life and death, literally. And they say, look, half measures availed us nothing. It doesn't cut it. Selective obedience doesn't work. My problem is I kind of prefer selective obedience. I I, I want to sacrifice when it's convenient. I, I want devotion when it feels good. I want God to help me when I need it. And I want him at a comfortable distance when I don't. But that's not a disciple. And it'll never work that way. So to follow or not to follow? That's the question we're going to be talking about over the next several weeks. And Colin is going to have some great messages for you. I hope you'll be here next Sunday and following. And I hope you'll think about what it means to be a disciple this week. Let's close with a prayer. Father God, thank you so much for giving us the abundant life, the way that Jesus alone provides. Father, when we're in the sunshine and we're in the the storms, help us always be building our foundation on the truth and grace of Jesus. The only thing that will hold us up all through life. God, we hear so many voices out there calling us to another way, explaining, telling us, claiming that there's other ways that are better, but we know they're all facades. God, keep us from being sucked in to what the world around us is telling us. And let us build our foundation on the rock. Doing what Jesus says, living life as he calls us to, and experiencing a kind of fullness that we can have no other way, the kind of fullness that you created us to know. For we pray this prayer in Jesus' name, and amen.